My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Megha Rajagopalan. Stay tuned. So, you know, it's not a surprise, but curiosity is embedded in us. It's what fuels our development and our progress as individuals and as groups. It fuels our aspirations and our choices. Speaking of which, hopefully you're choosing to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at MyGroupFraint. Okay, so for some, curiosity is likely joined by a purposeful pursuit, leading to discovery and storytelling. And I'm guessing that this has long been a part of journalist Megha Rajagopalan's personal story arc, the one that recently led to her and her team at BuzzFeed News to win the 2021 Pulitzer Prize in international reporting for her reporting on the Uyghur community in China. Megha is originally from the States and is now based in London, but her journey has taken her across the globe to report on a variety of human rights issues, conflicts, and vulnerable people. We caught up last week to chat about her reporting, about her preparation and outlook, including a playfully understated text from her dad about the Pulitzer Award that Megha tweeted out, fully relatable by nearly all of us, and I asked her to reflect a bit upon it. Um... You mean winning the Pulitzer or my dad's response? No, no, uh, your dad's response. <laughs> I mean, I feel a bit bad, actually, because um, I wrote this tweet um, after laughing about this because yeah. my dad sent this text message in the, like, I had already called my mom and then my dad was somewhere else, like, I think at a doctor's appointment or some, something like that, like an yeah. obligation. And then he sort of dashed it off without fully processing like what had happened and I was just like this is no exclamation point like I know I just thought it was kind of cute and then I I still treat Twitter like it's a place where I make dumb jokes to my friends which I realized like it has not been in 10 years but I still treat it like that so then I wrote this tweet thinking that you know 20 people would like it and then I would move on with my life yeah from then it's gotten like, I don't even know what it's up to now. It's like 130,000 likes. And then it, it went viral in India and like lots of small Indian publications that I had like never heard of and like all languages that I don't- They, they like zoomed with it. They picked it up and yeah, yeah it's, it's sort of taken on a life of its own. I think I wasn't like, I just thought it was kind of funny. Like I wasn't yeah. like hurt or anything like that. My dad is not really like that type of like emotionally withholding type of person. Like he's, he's yeah. actually really supportive it's more just that I think that there's a generational divide when it comes to texting specifically, um, which was fully on display, I think, with that text. I heard that your family then, or your dad, I mean, to be fair, like they, they sent you the plant also, yes. right? Which yeah, I like like um, you know the entire rest of the human population. I've become a houseplant fanatic during the um, the <laughs> pandemic. So yeah. they um, they very nicely sent me uh, a Pachira aquatica in the mail. Well, I mean, I'm sure your dad is 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 thrilled. I know he is. And um, you know, first off, congratulations are a big order, and with all the punctuation that sort of follows it. <laughs> Thank you. You, know, you you've been reporting in Asia and China for years. I'm curious how the thread of that story got got started. 
And what was your sort of first introduction to it, you know, and a particularly vulnerable community, even before your visit, perhaps to the internment camp? How, how did that sort of process get started for you? So my history with China is I was working there as a reporter in primarily in Beijing since about 2012. Um, I started my career as a, as a trainee and then a political correspondent at Reuters, like at their bureau in Beijing. And in that role, I covered a lot of the kind of like big political, social and like kind of human rights related developments in China, like between 2012 and 2016. Um, during that time, I, you know, I started to cover um, issues pertaining to Uyghurs, like ranging from issues around migration and human rights, um, series of knife and bomb attacks that the government blamed on Uyghur extremists um, around 2013 and 2014. I kind of already had a, an interest in the Xinjiang region. I had backpacked through there when I was a student um, in China and, um, you know, hitchhiked around uh, along the Karkarum Highway. And it was just a stunningly beautiful place with a, a very unique culture um, that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find in, in China just because it's very different from um, the, the majority culture in China, yeah. um, Han Chinese culture. So then well, after I moved to BuzzFeed, I kind of wanted to look at it in a bit greater depth. And this was in, this was around 2017. And around the same time, we started to hear rumors that things in Xinjiang had just gotten a lot worse. Relations between the ruling Communist Party and Uyghurs, who are an ethnic minority that make up like sort of about half of the population, maybe a little bit less than half of the population in the region, um, those relations had never been good. And there had been sort of periodic repression. There had been a lot of unrest, deadly unrest, terrorist attacks, um, all kinds of uh, like um, issues in that region. But there had never been this situation of mass surveillance and mass internment to the point that we have seen uh, arise since 2016. So essentially what was happening was like, so basically in 2017, I I remember like I was talking to, you know, a colleague of mine who was a journalist for a different news organization. And um, he told us he had just been traveling in the region on a work trip to, to write a, a number of stories. And he had been there with a photographer and they had had a driver. And he told this story about how the, the driver was making reference to what were then called re-education Centers. Um, so I was like, well, what is this? So there, there are a number of kind of extra judicial prison systems in China or carceral yeah. systems in China that could be referred to as re-education. It's a bit of an ambiguous term. I decided I wanted to figure out what this was. And then I, because it's very hard to get access and do interviews in Xinjiang without being followed by um, by police or being having your sources be harassed, I had this idea to try to go to Turkey where a lot of Uyghurs had migrated by that time and talk to people who had left fairly recently. On that trip, I started asking everyone, do you know about these re-education centers? Like, what is this thing? Finally, I, I, I met someone who did know about it. Um, it was like, he knew, he, he had seen it. It was like kind of near where he used to live in Kashgar. And he sort of gave me directions on how to find it. And then I went actually by foot um, to like a landmark that he described, which was a big hotel. And then I, um, and I went to find it. And then that was sort of the beginning of my reporting on the subject for BuzzFeed. And then since then, we've produced a whole bunch of stories leading up to the series last year, which had to do with the locations of the camps and a lot of what what transpires inside of them. Yeah. And then we're still reporting on it now. For the most part, you know, that driver was kind of the window in. Had you met others? Had you befriended any folks or, you know, really developed relationships that made a difference in kind of, you know, navigating through that initial first hurdle? 
I, I spoke to a lot of people in the Uyghur exile community in the starting in the United States, like in, in DC, and um, they helped connect me to folks in Turkey who were kind of nodes in the community there. There's a big Uyghur community in um, in Kayseri, I think, in um, in southern Turkey, as well as in Ankara and Istanbul, and th- those people are kind of in the process of resettling they um you know they, they need to find work there and stuff like that um so there's this community that helps them so that community also was instrumental in helping journalists become more aware of of these issues so that that was really really helpful you know to some degree was was this at all different being a reporter of color being of south asian origin did did you find that you know especially with the people that you were reporting with or other you know mm-hmm. non south asian or non asian um, reporters. Did that make the experience any different, especially early on? Yeah. So early on, I was mostly just working by myself because I speak Chinese well enough. I just opted. I made a personal decision to take public transportation when I was in the region. So I was not working with a driver and I was not working with a translator. So it was really just me. Like for that first story, like way back in 2017, like this was not a big kind of international issue. And it it wasn't like to the point where the government was that, that sensitive about every reporter that was coming into the region. They were definitely sensitive about it, but it's not to the extent that it is now where it's it's very, very hard to get access. So I think when I got, like, I, I've told this story before, but like, basically, w- the way it works is that if you're a foreign journalist in China, you have a, a journalist visa in your passport, and you have like accreditation. So when you check into a hotel, you have to show your passport, and they'll Xerox your visa, and then the, they submit it to the local police department. This is just part of Chinese regulations. Right. In Xinjiang, it's quite common that when you check into a hotel, there will be a police officer that may come in and want to talk to you if they think that you're doing something that could be sensitive or damaging or something like that. So when I checked in, I I sort of, I had this whole plan in place that I was going to check into the hotel like really late at night and, you know, in on the hypothesis that everybody needs to sleep, like including police officers. All the police officers, right. Yeah. So <laughs> then I checked in like very late at night, you know, like clockwork uh, within about an hour, I got a call from the front desk. We like these two police officers here that want to see you. Yeah. And so I went down to meet with them. And the first thing they asked was, do you work for the New York Times? I said, no. They were like, where do you work? And I said, BuzzFeed News. And then I showed them the front page of BuzzFeed News, like on my phone, which of course was <laughs> a lot of entertainment content and like probably cat content and stuff yeah. like that. So that was good. And then, yeah. And then they, we had a good conversation. They were like, you know, it's nice to talk. And then um, they were, I told them that I was working on a piece about, you know, the lives of Uyghur people and, and which was true. And then they kind of left it alone. I, I left um, the hotel very early the following morning. But anyway, the reason I bring that up is that I've always sort of thought that maybe there was something about my appearance that made me seem sort of less of a threat because I have colleagues in the foreign press corps in China that went and received like far worse treatment, you know, especially I have to say like my like white male colleagues, I think come under even like more suspicion. Um, sure. So it, it, it's funny, it's like a double edged sword, because I think it sort of led to a little bit of underestimation. Because I think a lot of people when they think about foreign journalists, like they're thinking about like, a, like a white man who's like, this is CNN, like, you know, standing right. in front of a camera. Um, and I don't work in TV, obviously. And then um, I also like I, I try to dress down and stuff like yeah. that. 
um, a lot of people have asked me, like when I was working in China, like, oh, are you a foreign student and stuff like that? I try to actually like lean into that because I think that, you know, it, it, it avoids like intimidate, unnecessarily intimidating people and stuff like that. So I think it can, I think it can be a double-edged sword. I don't, th- you know, I, I don't know that if it's negatively impacted me with the story. When I was working in the series from last year, I did work with an interpreter in Kazakhstan, you know, then you have like, like one more person that's, um, yeah. that's kind of adding to the chemistry of it. But um, yeah, perhaps your your language skills, the fact that you know, you weren't a white male journalist, um, you think that that added to a little bit to, you know, not just simply the blending in part, but perhaps even trusting your your background a little bit. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know if it makes people trust me more or less. I definitely do not blend in in China, weirdly <laughs> enough, although I've been, it's weird, like, so, like, my my Chinese, got, like, got pretty good towards the end. The, the funny thing about Chinese is that there's so many different regional accents. It's such a big country that if you speak well enough, you can pretty much on the phone, like I could pass as a Chinese person who just wasn't from Beijing. Like people would just think yeah. this this woman has some weird accent from some other part right. of China, which was like amazing. So then when people saw me, it's so weird to see like a brown person speaking Chinese. They would be like, yeah. are you an ethnic minority? Like, are you from some, <laughs> I've, I've right. actually gotten this, I can't believe it, but I've gotten this question like, like many times during wow. my, my time there. Um, so I think may, maybe that does help. I'm not really sure, but um, it's hard because I've never experienced being white. So I don't know what would, what it would be True. like. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you, you and me both. Um, <laughs> and in that way, I mean, but one thing that's that's certainly true is you've been in other areas, other situations where you've been exploring conflict and 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 you know that kind of background from your professional career. I, I mean, I'm curious, um, how did some of those experiences kind of inform or prepare you for this particular um, you know reporting? You know, the, the series we worked on last year was sort of a marriage between like data-driven reporting and, and narrative. Um, so I focus mostly on the narrative side uh, because I have a very traditional kind of journalism background. I guess like I had worked on projects like that before. We did a project in Myanmar where we looked at uh, Facebook posts by basically by government officials um, calling for abuses against Rohingya Muslims there. And I think that was one of the first stories that I worked on were it was it was really clear that like how how data could work to tell a story and like how like particularly on human rights abuses how like kind of exploring the the harm and the impact that that's some like a, something like that has on real people can make a story come to life for readers and really draw people to it and that's sort of what we pursued with the story obviously like the data stunned me like I thought it was shocking like um you know what we found out about about the camps and prisons in the region but I think without like learning about how that really plays out in real life the kind of like long-term impacts that has on people you know from the time that they're in detention to the impacts on their family and then to the kind of long-term impacts on their physical health and their psychology I think without parsing all of that you know we wouldn't have really been able to tell the story in the same way yeah seems like it adds to, you know, the, the notion of intellectual curiosity that probably drives a lot. And for you, is, has this kind of intellectual curiosity always been your jam? Has this been something that you just, you know, really has excited you for a long time now? And um, whether it's been, you know, in journalism school or even before that, um, has that been kind of part of your journey? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably impossible to become a reporter without like a significant kind of intellectual curiosity streak in your personality. I think it's really important. I mean, I think like, uh, you know, everyone has a different style. I would say like my interviewing style is very open-ended. Like I usually try to ask questions in a a way that makes it easy for people to to reply and to reveal reveal things um, and don't, don't sort of like box them in. And I think that's sort of part of being curious and like it's part of kind of the rhythm of an interview like if somebody says something in passing and it like leaps out to me I try to just be like go with that natural curiosity and be like oh what did you mean when you said that I think that's probably a mistake that I made like very early in my career when I was in college and stuff I would ask like much more kind of like narrow questions and um I think I've found that it's like it's much more productive to um yeah to to like sort of let the curiosity take the lead sometimes yeah, for the amateurs like me, you know, I, I just go with this sort of shame-based curiosity that like, <laughs> hey, I, I don't know anything, so I'm just going to learn. Um, That's a valid technique. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, let me let me ask you this, because are, are there limits to that curiosity as, especially within, you know, an, an investigative uh, scenario where it can actually either build barriers or, or walls around, is there kind of that role for reflection and pause as you're actually developing a story. I think the like the limits are like when you're doing investigations like sometimes you you come you come on like a roadblock and like sometimes the right thing to do is to work to navigate around it but sometimes you should actually just drop the project right. because it, it may not be surmountable right so like I think that's definitely a challenge like learning where those points are and like learning where your efforts you know start to have a diminishing returns I think that's part of it the other place where I might pause is like I always try to like think about ethics like kind of throughout a project like from the kind of development stage um and like figuring out a reporting plan through like the interviews and like negotiating consent during an interview and stuff like that all the way through publication and thinking through the kind of uh any kind of blowback that people that we've worked with or sources like might come up on all of the sources that we talk to um you know in the Uyghur and Kazakh communities are incredibly vulnerable. Um, They most of the time recognize their own vulnerabilities, I think. Um, But I try to really talk through like, you know, what does it mean to be like, you know, have your maybe your name or some part of your identity out there um, in a place like BuzzFeed, uh, which doesn't have a paywall and is easily accessible to everyone. Um, I just want to make sure that there's like kind of a process for as as much like fully informed consent as possible. And at the same time, like, you know, a lot of times I'll talk to people who understand the risk, but they feel very, very strongly that they want their name in it. They because they they sort of recognize that that gives their testimony an additional measure of credibility, an important one. Um, and I don't want to sort of deny anyone the right to do that, um, you know, to the right to sort of knowingly take on that risk for, uh, you know, a, re- a potential reward, which is greater uh, public awareness of, of yeah. what's happening or awareness of their story, if that's what they're seeking. You know, and first off, that's such a thoughtful and, you know, very, very um, intentional approach uh, to protect the vulnerable. I think the limits on curiosity that I think um, you know, kind of plague sometimes those of us who are trying to develop a trusting relationship um, mm. is one that, you know, well, if you kind of veer in the wrong way and, you, and you're curious in the wrong direction that doesn't necessarily align with that person, they might feel that like, you know, well, I'm not really interested in, in particularly divulging or disclosing that part. And, mm. um, you know, those limits seem like they could actually, you know, put up walls and, and maybe in some ways kind of naturally or unnaturally steer your, your story in a different direction. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's all part of like, you have to be a human being, right? Like, I mean, we forget that sometimes as journalists, but it's very important. Like if somebody's, you know, if somebody's has a cold or something, like yeah. I'm going to get them a glass of water or a cup of tea. Like, you know, right. that's more important than whatever I'm going to ask. So it's like sort of little things like that. Yeah. If someone, obviously the subject of this is like extremely emotional, you know, if somebody's, there have been at least like many times where people have been, uh, you know, moved to tears sure. uh, in the course of telling these stories are extremely emotional stories. Um, I can think of one example there's an older woman who's featured in one of the stories who has a daughter who's in her early 20s who's still living in Xinjiang and she told this very long story about in a very kind of stoic fashion about her time in the camp and like she was yeah she was totally composed throughout this whole period and then at the end she started to speak about her daughter and how she was just consumed with this worry about her daughter, whether her daughter would be detained. And then she's just started like full on, like full body sobbing. Yeah. And it was, it was hard because um, my interpreter, who's a man was in the room and he's a Kazakh man. Yeah. And then I, I think there was a friend of hers who was also a man who was in the room yeah. and I was it was sort of I was on the only the only one in the position to really comfort her because of you know the norms around that and you know I just held her for for a long time yeah and we breathed together I don't speak any Kazakh so it was not probably the easiest for her or me um yeah. but um you know I mean I think in those moments like you have to know this is not the time to push right it's not nice to push somebody in like she's gonna take her time and she that she's um entitled to that like she's entitled to my patience and my listening and like I'm the one with the responsibility in that situation it's not her right yeah. so I, I try to be really aware of that obviously in other cases we have to push, like as journalists, we have to push in an interview. You know, it's it's not necessarily an adversarial kind of pushing, but sometimes you just have to, you have to find yeah. something out. I think those things, like you have to find the kind of right pace and the right place in the conversation to do that and hopefully build up some trust before you get to those to those tougher questions so that the person can understand that at least like even if the question is difficult you're on you're in a place of of mutual respect and like mutual understanding like I'm not out here to screw anyone over right. or misrepresent anyone like I might be critical but I'm not I'm not trying to misrepresent anyone it's almost like knowing the rhythm of you know when to push the accelerator a little bit and, and when yeah. to let up and um, that probably comes, I'm assuming, you know, also with a little bit of kind of experience and, and yeah. the observational parts and um, kind of going up and down with that. Let me ask mm. you this. I mean, in medicine, we always talk about, you know, kind of the currency and value of an activity changing management and what mm. is it sort of added um, as far as value for someone who's maybe getting introduced to this story of the Uyghurs or any of the activity in the Kazakh area um, for the first time? How would you describe the kind of impact of your work on the on the stakeholders that that you've you know really interviewed and and those vulnerable folks um, that you've now shared you know some pretty powerful moments with mm. um, you know and how would you describe sort of what the impact of of that work is on mm. this backdrop on 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 and on things moving forward? 
It's, you know, it's a tough question because when it comes to China, it's very hard sometimes to figure out if your work is making an impact. And that's one of my like least favorite things about reporting on China. Um, and I think it has to do with the opacity of their governmental system, their bureaucracy. Like in the US, like the kind of standard journalistic impact thing is that, you know, maybe a law would be changed or there would be like a hearing. Um, and at, at any level, maybe the local level, maybe national level like and you would know about that and you would see that your work is making an impact in china it's much more if it's making an impact and i'm not just talking about myself i'm talking about any of the kind of right, there's right. all kinds of work on xinjiang that has been really really remarkable but like including you know like like tons and tons of leaked documents that go to like the, the highest levels of, of leadership in china um you know that came out in in the new york times and other publications even that stuff it's very hard to see like what the concrete impact has been. I would say like, there's like a um, much clearer, clearer impact in the realm of like US and European policy, not just from our work, but from like kind of like the whole body of work that everyone else has done. Like you could see that in, you know, like the, the US and like how it's banned, uh, explicitly banned cotton and um, tomato-based imports from the region, um, they've put sanctions on a number of companies and officials. There have been EU sanctions. All of that stuff has come uh, like in response to like this kind of like drib drab of mm -hmm. media reports and investigations that have happened over this kind of like three to four year period that has amassed this kind of like body of evidence. Um, I'm sure that the US government has their own ways to collect evidence about these things, yeah. but I have heard from US officials that like the like the publicly available stuff in the media has played a significant role in um, how they approach um, policy on this. Tell me one thing, what were you doing when you heard the news that you'd won the Pulitzer? Oh, I was... <laughs> Honestly, I was sitting in my apartment um, in London, staring at my laptop. I was not watching the live stream because I just did not think that there was any possibility that we would win. Like I, um, I knew that BuzzFeed had submitted our series, but um, I just didn't. I was like, "This is never going to happen." Yeah, so I was, I was just hanging around doing nothing, and then um, our editor in chief, Mark Schuess, called me and said, "You know, you've won a Pulitzer." Yeah. I was like, "This is crazy!" Like I just, I couldn't really believe it. I was pretty shocked. Well, and and thinking of that and. and obviously the just sort of you know shock and joy of the of the achievement how, how does that uh juxtapose with what you were feeling when you were holding that woman in your arms and, and trying to comfort her I mean um is there does it make that much sweeter does the you know does it want does it make you want long for more of those experiences especially in this kind of story it, it's a tough Thing to say because obviously we, nobody does it for the award we don't do it for the awards like yeah. I don't do it for the awards like I mean I'm I'm happy for the Pulitzer because it is obviously a prestigious prize that a lot of people outside of media like know about and um you know I was just thinking this because it got that tweet and stuff and the Pulitzer announcement got so much attention in India from like kind of small publications yeah. that um aren't internationally known and it just made me think like you know perhaps this actually brought the Xinjiang issue to a new audience mm -hmm. so I'm really happy for impacts like that the fact that it may bring a whole new audience to our work is yeah. is amazing like I'm really grateful for that but 
ultimately like awards are not the thing that's going to help this work have an impact. I mean, it, it, it may do in the sense that, you know, it'll, it'll sort of elevate it in the eyes of policymakers and what have you. But ultimately, I think it's, it's the work that's important. And that's sort of why we're continuing the work as well. Um, I think ultimately, like what we, we hope to impact is like, is kind of like the broad, like the broader situation. And um, that, that's sort of the, the purpose behind the work, I think. There aren't a ton of South Asian women from Maryland in this space. So um, tell me, how does that factor into this achievement? I mean, is does the specter of paving more roads for others to follow or even mentoring others in the, in the same way who are South Asian women or, or women of mm. color um, in this space, how, how, how do you sort of reflect on that now moving forward? You know, lots of people win the Pulitzer, I guess, but like, um, yeah, I mean, I've sort of wondered, like, like my, like, I have to say, like, my phone was kind of like unusable for like the past like, few days. And I was like, what, like, why is it that so many people are like, um, interested in this? And I, I do think it probably part of it is like the fact that I'm like a youngish, like a woman of, of Indian descent, like it's, it's not that usual for, um, women of color to win like very prestigious awards in journalism. I think there's been lots of data that shows that. So like if that helps other people realize that they can do the same thing, then like so much the better. I mean, so much of the Indian press coverage was like emphasizing my heritage and stuff and like the kind of like pride that comes with that. And um, I think that's that's really nice. Obviously lots of people that are from India have done equally right. remarkable things. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, if, if that helps other people um, see this as, um, see this level of success as possible or th this type of path, um, like specifically investigative reporting, you know, specifically working in other countries, like if it helps other people see that as a path, I think that's great. The other thing I would say is like, you know, when I started, I started reporting on China because, you know, for the same reason as, lots of non-Chinese people report on China, which is that it's a really interesting country. It's one of the most powerful countries in the world. It's world's second largest economy. It's, you know, it's like, there's a there's about like a, a million stories there at any right. point in time. And all of them are kind of globally significant. So I just thought I was really interested in it. Like that, that's pretty much it for me. But I mean, in the beginning of my career, like so many people would be like, why are you doing this? Like, why don't you go report on India? Like, don't you belong in India? Like to the point where like, I mean, I can't even tell you like how many people said stuff like that to me. And I was a little offended because like, I just don't think that anyone would have asked like a white, a young right. white American journalist that question. Nobody would say, why don't you go and report on, you know, Poland or wherever your heritage is, right? Yeah. Um, and then the thing is like, so like that's over now. So I'm really happy about that. Like it took some time to establish myself, but I think that it, it sort of singled out to me that that it is kind of an unusual path. Like people sort of expect if you're a racial minority that you would, you know, you would either be in the West or you would go to the country of your heritage. Right. And I think if it helps like other people who are racial minorities to see that, that they don't have to make that choice, they can go wherever they, they choose, like just like anybody else, like I think so much the better. Well, hopefully you're not gonna be getting those questions um, ever again. We're so <laughs> grateful for all that you're doing and it's really quite remarkable. Megha, thank you so much for, for joining and I hope you'll come back and join us again at some point. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun.